Coming to you from the Forge of Freedom studio in the heart of America, a podcast dedicated to preserving freedom and inspiring personal success. Freedom is born and lives through you, the individual, and it dies in the shadows of tyranny. Motivating our listeners to become well-rounded, freedom-minded people with the body of an athlete, the mind of a stoic, and the spirit of a warrior. The Tree of Liberty lives on through you, the Forge of Freedom. And now here's your host, Alex Uli. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Forge of Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Alex Uli, and this is episode 43 of the Forge of Freedom. Today for Monday Gun Day, I have Mike Uli back in the studio. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us again. No problem. Appreciate uh, being here, Alex. Yeah, so we're going to continue our series about the aftermath of self-defense. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about post-violent encounter trauma. And so a lot of the, the what we're talking about today, we, we draw from Masad Ayub and, and Mag Forty and his, his Deadly Force instructor class, um, but we're really going to be talking a lot about, a lot about sort of the uh, psychological and emotional aftermath of a self-defense encounter, even if you survive the encounter, and even if you were completely justified in using deadly force, you may nevertheless still suffer uh, significant psychological and emotional trauma as a result of that incident. Uh, so, we're going to talk about that that today. Next week, we're going to take a little bit of a break from our series about the aftermath, uh, and we're going to talk about Masad Ayub's Ten Commandments of Concealed Carry. Um, so keep keep an eye out for that episode next week. Uh, so with that said, Mike, let's go ahead and get into the topic for today: the post-violent incident trauma. Uh, so I mentioned, I alluded to this sort of psychological, emotional aftermath, even if you quote unquote win the incident, and really we've talked about this before, the only win is to completely avoid the critical incident. But even if you survive and win in that that way, uh, it's not without consequence, right? Absolutely. Like, we, like you said, just to reiterate, we've always said awareness and avoidance is the key, and that's the only true win. But we've been talking about in this series, you know, if if you are involved in a deadly force encounter where you were justified in using deadly force as a result of the fact that you faced a otherwise unavoidable threat or death of death or grave bodily harm to you or another innocent, and you have to use it. We've talked about uh, deadly force. That is, we've talked about the nine one one call, the aftermath. But one of the things we wanted to talk about is the, I guess for lack of a better term, is the uh, kind of the post-violent uh, event traumas or psychological effects that you could uh, suffer. And like you mentioned, a lot of this is going to come from our training with Masada Ayub, his MAG-40, Deadly Force Instructor. You'll If you're a member of the Armed Citizens Legal Defense Network, um, this is also part of what will be sent out in their um, video and learning series that they send out to all. Uh, all new, all new members. So those are sort of the references. And I think I also want to say, uh, I'm not a psychologist in, with respect to this subject. I'm, I think we're just conduits to provide this information to folks for them to think about and do their own uh, research. Like I said, I don't have any psychological training. Um, some folks may think I need to see a psychologist, but I don't have any training in that regard. And neither do you, from what I understand. Anyway, right. Unless right. Hidden that from me. Somewhere. No, no. In any event, and you know, <clears throat> 
a theme that you'll see through most of our series is the more you know and the better prepared you are, um, the more likely you're going to succeed if you have to use deadly force. And also the more likely you're going to be successful in the aftermath if you know what's going to happen to you. No matter how righteous, how moral, how ethical, how legal your use of force was, the more you know about the consequences and what's going to come after, the better off you're going to be in terms of avoiding those negative consequences. Yeah, I I think that's a great point to to draw out here a little bit is that we talk about before the critical incident, the more you visualize and prepare for the possibility of the critical incident, the more likely you are to respond appropriately at the time of the critical incident. But that's true even after the critical incident. So the more that you are prepared for the possible consequences, uh, psychological, mental, emotional, the more likely you are to be able to deal with those consequences. Yeah, we want you to be that person um, that says, I knew this could happen and I know what to do. That's what we're trying to accomplish in the comfort of our air-conditioned home when we read or study these things. And it will help us if we're ever involved in a violent encounter. And that's true whether that's dealing with the the deadly threat. I, I knew this could happen and I know what to do. And that's true when it comes to the aftermath the mental, emotional, psychological, legal aftermath. I knew this could happen, and I know what to do. Yep. And speaking of one of the legal things that can help here, uh, if you happen to, you know, whatever, this may happen in a jurisdiction that's not very gun-friendly, and you have to go to court. You may even have a jury trial to defend yourself here. Um, And if you know these things ahead of time, have studied them, not only will it hopefully help you avoid these, Uh, but it will um, allow your attorney to explain to the jury that you knew about these negative consequences and uh, your attorney will be able to educate the jury on those potential negative consequences and essentially say to the jury, you know, ladies and gentlemen, now that you understand the negative consequences, please understand my client knew about these before this incident. And don't you think he would have tried to avoid this incident um, knowing what he knew at the time? Uh, and, but unfortunately he had no other choice because he had to save his life or save another innocent person's life. So it'll be important, um, from that standpoint, if you're ever involved in a, in a trial, I think. Yeah, that's, that's a great point because so often people, uh, take lightly the consequences in the aftermath of a deadly force encounter. And you want to tell the jury, not only did I not take it lightly, I knew the consequences were going to be severe. And despite knowing the consequences would be severe, I felt like, nevertheless, I had to use deadly force to protect my life or the life of, of another innocent person. Yeah, and keep in mind, prosecutors are, at least in some instances, are political animals and kind of put their thumb or their finger up to the wind to see how the, the political winds are blowing. And this sort of understanding of the potential psychological impact of a deadly force encounter, the understanding of it, can help you handle arguments from uh, prosecutors that, uh, you know, uh, you were a vigilante just, you know, and you had a million guns at home and you were looking forward to this day. Uh, you can respond to that effectively and explain, no, we understood what was going to happen. We wanted to avoid that. Um, and despite, uh, our understanding and all the reasons that we wanted to avoid this situation, um, the perpetrator required us to defend innocent life. Yeah. Yep. Great point. So, um, not only is this going to be potentially important for your jury, if you're charged and have to go to trial, but it's also going to be important to understand these things for your own personal well-being uh, and coping with the potential 
symptoms or trauma that you may have to deal with in the aftermath of a self-defense incident. So uh, if it's okay with you, Mike, I think we can go ahead and dive into a, a couple of these potential symptoms of a post-shooting uh, trauma. Uh, the first one that we typically mention is what's called the Mark of Cain syndrome. What is the Mark of Cain syndrome? Well, essentially, this is a reference to a biblical biblical story. And I think it's important to understand that uh, most people probably have, and like I said, I feel uncomfortable talking about this psychological stuff, but most people have a sense of their own well-being based upon their the person's perception of how other people view them. And the Mark of Cain really, I think, stands for the proposition that you're going to have a different self-identity because you're going to perceive that other people perceive you differently and maybe negatively because you've taken another life or severely injured someone else. No matter how justified that may have been, um, your perception is that people are looking at you negatively. Yeah. And this is actually a, a, one of the more common symptoms of a uh, the trauma in the aftermath of self-defense. I don't know what the percentages are, but it, it, it occurs at a fairly high rate in people who have used force and deadly fence, even uh, lawfully so, even justifiably so. Uh, people will experience this because you see yourself differently, but other people may see you differently uh, because you have taken the life of another human being. Yeah, I mean, essentially... Our well-being, I think, to a large extent after a self-defense encounter is going to depend on how our community, however you define your community, or society views your actions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what this is speaking to, I think. Yeah. Um, the other, and you mentioned this is very common, um, and that's my understanding. Um, the other very common thing is some sort of sleep disturbance that, um, once again, I don't have any percentages, but I understand this is pretty common uh, after an incident like a self-defense incident. And for those, if if it's okay with you, Mike, I think I'll just briefly mention, I mean, you mentioned this is a stems from a, the biblical story. And you're, of course, you're alluding to the, the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, so the, that's where the Mark of Cain uh, syndrome gets its name. And for those who don't know, uh, Cain and Abel were uh, the first two sons of, of Adam and Eve. And Cain, the firstborn, was a farmer, and his brother Abel was a shepherd. And the the brothers made sacrifices to God, but God favored Abel's sacrifice instead of Cain's. And Cain, being jealous, murdered Abel. And God punished Cain by condemning him to a life of wandering. And this is what it was sort of this outcast life. And that is the feeling that people have is that they're an outcast. They're not part of the group anymore because they took the life of another human being and that differentiates them from their community. And uh, one thing, I, I think it sort of emphasizes the, the sanctity of human life and the importance that the community places on human life and that by taking it, you are sort of outcast. Even if you your your actions were uh, morally justified, yeah, and that's why. And by the way, that's you did a much better job explaining it than I did. Um, but I think that's why you know a lot of times we in our we teach legal classes, and a lot of times we emphasize to folks that the question is not can I use deadly force, but the question should be 
Should I use or, deadly or must force I? or must I is the better question. Must I use deadly force? Mm -hmm. um, so anyway. Yeah, and I think this is true, and I don't want to skip, skip ahead here too much, Mike, but I'd like to mention it just briefly. I think for this particular symptom, the Mark of Cain syndrome, and some of these others, it, it is one of those symptoms where people are more able to cope with it, number one, if they know that it's a potential symptom beforehand. And number two, if they have a, a supportive community around them. So I think that often people who uh, do go to church or do are part of some su supportive community uh, tend to cope with this particular symptom better, or at least that's my understanding. Yeah. And we were going to talk about that later, the variation in sort of, uh, different types of people, how they react to yeah. a, to a, a violent encounter. And one of them is the religious person versus the non-religious person. And it seems to be this, perhaps this is anecdotal, but that uh, religious people seem to cope with these sorts of situations or the aftermath of these situations better, uh, usually because they have a supportive church community. Mm -hmm. um, and that helps a lot. Um, and I think the other thing is they see themselves as being the ultimate judge of what they do in their life is going to be the Bible and, or God is that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate judge, not society. Right. So I think that's one of the um, ways that you have various reactions, depending on what sort of groups you belong to in society. Right. So that's the Mark of Cain syndrome. The next one and one that's quite common, I think uh, maybe more apparent to people is sleep disturbance. Yeah, and then most of the time it's going to be uh, folks have some degree of insomnia. Uh, they may have nightmares. Um, they just can't sleep. Yes, yeah. bottom line. Uh, and that, uh, when I understand, uh, that's a pretty often or pretty common symptom. So uh, those are the probably the two most common, at least in my understanding. The next one, I was uh, kind of surprised to learn about the first time, but I think is actually fairly common, and that's survival euphoria. What is survival euphoria? Well, it's a sense of, of happiness or excitement about surviving a deadly force incident, um, being happy about it. Um, and evidently, this is pretty common. But I think some folks may feel guilty about this. They have this sense of euphoria, and there may be confusion, and the confusion may exist in the uh, people around you as well in society, but confusion about the, the euphoria in terms of its origin. The origin is not that you've taken another person's life, but that you've survived. Um, so I think it's important to understand that distinction um, and also be aware of the fact that um, other folks in society may not correctly interpret that euphoria or that excitement that you have from surviving the uh, deadly force encounter. And I think this is a an example, and all of these are really examples of symptoms that if you know ahead of time what they are, you're you're more able to cope with them. But I think this one in particular fits that mold because people, like you said, it's this confusion. Am, am I happy about surviving or am I actually happy about having killed a person and people feel guilty? Am I feeling this euphoric happiness? because I killed someone and does that make me a bad person? And I think that's sort of this internal conflict that they're experiencing. Uh, but it's really just euphoria about having survived 
a deadly force encounter. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, hopefully folks don't have to deal with this at all, but if they do, they've, once again, they knew this could happen and they know what to do and they can get some outside counseling or at least talk about it with somebody. Yep. So we've talked about Mark of Cain, sleep disturbance, sleep disturbance and survival euphoria. What's, what's the next one? Well, and I'm, once again, I'm not a psychologist, but there's uh, potential depression uh, and that can be, I guess you can get a clinical diagnosis or you can just use the com kind of what I think of depression is you just don't feel good. You feel lousy and you feel down and low and just sad about the situation. And I, and quite frankly, it's above my pay scale, pay rate to define the difference between clinical depression and not feeling well or lousy, but that's going to, that's very likely going to happen some form of that to you. And it's possible you could feel both of these in my understanding, you could feel euphoria and then also subsequently depression. So yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah, it's possible you could experience both. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, next on the list, we have appetite disturbance. Yeah. And that I think can manifest itself in a couple of ways from what I understand. Uh, one is you just use your, lose your appetite completely or almost completely due to the extreme stress of the situation. Um, and then there's an, another group of people who might um, basically eat too much, overeat. Um, and that's a way that some folks may cope with the stress. They may binge eat, binge eat certain things, whatever. Mm -hmm. So it could be some sort of appetite disturbance one way or the other. Yeah. And then alcohol abuse. I think this is, um, particularly concerning for people who have had a history of alcohol abuse may go back to that coping mechanism, uh, and go back down a road that maybe they'd been struggling to, to avoid and get off of for some time. So, uh, I think that's, uh, maybe a more predictable one, uh, at least in some folks than in others, but a potential problem nevertheless. Yeah. Although I, I feel somewhat, I keep saying this, I'm not an expert in this, but it seems to me that incident could be the one that turns you into an alcohol abuser as well. It's not, I would assume that it's probably more likely to, affects somebody that's had a previous drinking problem, but that could be the incident that triggers a drinking problem. Mm -hmm. And some of these are specific, I think, to the use of self-defense or the use of force in self-defense. Others, I think, are more broadly applicable to just trauma in general, other sorts of trauma. And I think this alcohol abuse would, would fall into that category, unlike, for instance, the survival euphoria or the sure. Mark of Cain syndrome, which are why we say those are the more common ones with respect to self-defense, I think because that, that sort, the type of trauma involved is more uh, specific to, to self-defense. Yep, I agree. Uh, the next one is the pharma, pharmacological cascade. And uh, you want to say a little bit about that? I've got some thoughts on this one as well. but I do too about big pharma, and I got to be careful about what I say. Um, you know, we talked about depression. That's one way you can get on drug pharmacy drug. They're the legal drugs. You can get on the ones that big pharma and the doctors prescribe. Um, and you got to be careful about that. In in, my, in our practice, I see this not so much from depression, but I see this in folks that are. I see a lot of medical records, and, and it seems as if there are a lot of people that get started on medicines, painkillers, things like that, that result in a lot of long-term problems for folks. So, um, 
even though doctors may prescribe something for you to elevate your mood, for instance, or um, deal with depression, be very, 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 very careful about that because it can, it can just uh, uh, roll on down the hill and get to be a bigger problem than what it's trying to solve. Yeah. I think, and I see this sometimes in the type of cases that I handle, not only self-defense cases, but, but drug related cases. And a lot of times people are on drugs, prescribed drugs, because sometimes that's all the medical community knows how to do is prescribe drugs. Um, but they will prescribe drugs to elevate your mood if you're depressed. And then if you can't sleep, they'll prescribe drugs to sedate your mood or to moderate your mood. So you, they, they get you at both ends of the spectrum. They elevate your mood with drugs and then suppress your mood with drugs. And you sort of get on this endless cycle of drug use, uh, because you have to have drugs. Um, you don't have to have drugs necessarily, but the medical community prescribes drugs to elevate and suppress mood. Yeah. And, uh, there are some great doctors out there, but sometimes it seems that patients are simply experiments um, to determine what the um, results will be from kind of throwing drug darts at a at a board and prescribing things to folks. Um, sometimes it seems to me that these some doctors work for the uh, for big pharma and they're just, uh, just there to write a prescription based upon whatever they've got on the, the shelf in stock that day. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, and Mike's already said this, we're, neither one of us are doctors, but I think that medication is way overused. And if you're experiencing problems with, with mood or sleep, I think you're far better off looking to your, your diet exercise getting outside and getting good sunlight, et cetera. So um, obviously I'm not a functional medicine doctor, but uh, I think that uh, oftentimes people get caught in this vicious cycle of medication when there are more natural solutions to the problem. Yeah. And once again, I'm not a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a doctor of anything. Well, I guess I am a juris doctorate, but <laughs> I, I'm not, you know, no expertise in this area, but um, in the, I would say there is a place for, for medications but I'm just a skeptic of their use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the next one we've gone through quite a few already, but the next one is aggression slash avoidance syndrome. You want to say a little bit about that, Mike? Yeah, I think this is usually from what I understand is usually present or I shouldn't say usually, but sometimes present in folks who, for whatever reason, their perception of a deadly force encounter is they lost. It, it might be because, um, maybe they're charged with a crime or something. They're in a jurisdiction where it didn't go well because the prosecutor is out to get folks that have guns. Who knows? But they've they perceived they've lost the situation somehow, and they turn overly aggressive. Um, they seek out aggression to prove themselves. Maybe they think the situation didn't go well, so they're going to look for another situation to prove themselves. Um, and then other people, I think this why we call it the aggressive avoidance syndrome. Other people just try to avoid any kind of contact or any kind of dangerous situation at all. Um, they fit, once again, they probably feel like they failed in some situation. Um, the example that I've seen before is that it's like the police officer that's involved in some sort of deadly force encounter. Well, in the future, instead of being the officer that gets there on scene, they might go a little slower 
hoping and somebody else gets there first, that sort of thing. And I'm sure that doesn't happen much, but that's just one example of the avoidance um, syndrome that we're talking about. The next one we've got here is impotence slash sexual dysfunction. And uh, I think most of the symptoms that we're, we're talking about here are not so much physiological, so much as they are mental uh, issues that stem from the brain, right? And I, I think that this uh, impotence or sexual dysfunction also is could be a symptom of that. And uh, people feel like, I think sometimes I've taken a life, how can I, you know, how can I possibly create another one? Or why would I bring another one into the world? This, this sort of, uh, I think it stems from a few different things, possibly the stress of the aftermath, possibly the depression of the aftermath. Um, I, I think some of these are interrelated and this may be one of those. Yeah. I mean, I think it's your brain or your mind is under enormous stress as a result of the situation. And this is one of those that doesn't necessarily have to be a self-defense scenario. You, your brain could be under and mind could be under enormous stress for a number of reasons. Well, that stress precludes it from doing other things. And that's why you may have the sexual dysfunction along with lots of other things. Yeah. So, uh, and then the last one we've got here before we move on to the next part of this discussion is flashbacks. Yeah. And in flashbacks, I talked about this before. I mean, this can happen while you're conscious, not sleeping. It could happen in the form of, I'm not sure what the definition of flashbacks are, but I, I kind of classify this as potential nightmares as well, but it's just some event that occurs in your life and it makes you think back to, um, you know, the, the bad event in your life. It tri it's a, it's a trigger for those bad memories. Um, we see this a lot or we don't see a lot. Some, for instance, 4th of July wasn't too long ago. If you're somebody that's a veteran that's been in Afghanistan or anywhere from world war anymore, um, fireworks displays might be disturbing to you. So it might cause flashbacks to something that you were involved in earlier in your military career. So mm -hmm. that's what we're talking about there in terms of flashbacks. So I just want to uh, recap here a little bit. Uh, some of the more common symptoms, the Mark of Cain syndrome and sleep disturbance, and then others that we've talked about here, survival euphoria, depression, appetite disturbance, alcohol abuse, the pharmacological cascade, the aggression slash avoidance syndrome, uh, and then impotence slash sexual dysfunction and flashbacks are slightly less likely. But like we talked about at the beginning, there are pe people who react to the aftermath differently. And part of uh, one of the predictors of how you react in the aftermath is how well prepared you are for it. H have you thought about these things? Do you know that they're going to happen? And there's a word for that. Uh, what's that called or what's that effect called? I think. Oh, the inoculation effect. Yeah. Um, it, once again, you're the person that um, you knew this could happen. You know what to do. You've been through it in your mind. We talk about it in training with uh, Stress inoculation, stress inoculation, visualization, mm -hmm. um, but that inoculation effect will help you get through these um, these aftermath issues or aftermath aftermath problems. Yep. But there are other things that can be predictors of how people react to it, and there are sort of other categories that uh, tend to react 
more or less severely to these symptoms or to be more or less affected by these symptoms. You want to talk about that a little bit, Mike? Well, number one, we've talked about the religious versus non-religious. Maybe religious folks uh, can have a, a more positive reaction because they've got the support of that particular community. Um, but the other thing is, is that uh, the male versus female dynamic. Um, frankly, women um, probably have lower societal expectations with respect to being critical of them and using deadly force. Um, I think I said that correctly. Um, so, but men on the other hand may be looked at more critically in terms of their judgment in using deadly force. For instance, oh, couldn't you have just fought the guy with, you know, your bare hands? Um, did you really have to use the gun? I think men are going to be criticized more uh, in some situations than women are. And because of that, once again, how society judges judges us, that may impact how we feel about the situation as well. Yeah. So um, the other thing uh, about the, the male versus female is that oftentimes, and part of the reason for this difference in judgment is that men are typically bigger, they're typically stronger, that changes the uh, disparity of force calculation. And so that's a lot of times why uh, men are held to a different standard when it comes to the use of deadly force. And, yeah, and, and, yeah, and sometimes that may be fair to mm -hmm. have a different standard. No yeah. question about that. Yeah. Um, and but at the same time, it may not be fair either. So, right. Um, you, you know, if you're a male, you're probably going to be judged a little more critically. Mm -hmm. Uh, so how should somebody, if if it's not you that's involved in the the deadly force incident or the critical incident, but it's somebody you know. How should you approach that person? Well, you know, we talked one thing just to remind folks, and I don't know if it was the last one or the one before, but we've talked about if you're involved in a deadly force encounter, you want to be very judicious about who you talk to, your lawyer, obviously, um, but you want to make sure what you say doesn't get used against you. Um, and when you start talking about the specifics of a deadly force encounter um, to somebody like a friend, that may end up, you know, that friend may have to testify and indicate what you said. It's possible anyway, depending on the circumstances. But I think it's important to understand that, you know, in, if you've got a friend or a family member, don't ask them about the, the details. Just be there for them. Uh, don't congratulate them about the incident. Don't tease them about it. But it's a good idea to reach out to them. Um, take them something to, you know, it's sort of like a, I kind of think of it something like a funeral. I mean, you may want to take them a meal. You may want to help them with their yard. You may want to, there's all kinds of things you can help them with without getting into the details of the incident. Just let them know you're, that you're glad that they survived and you're there to help them in whatever way you can with their daily life. And um, I think that's the best. And be sensitive to the fact that they may be experiencing some of these yeah. symptoms that we've talked about. Yeah. And hopefully they're a person that's already knows about these like you do. Mm -hmm. uh, if they don't do what you can to try to, uh, and that may be so, somewhat sensitive, but do what you can to educate them about these potential ramifications. Yeah. And we've talked about the importance of uh, preparation, uh, of training, of visualization, of knowing that this could happen and knowing what, what to do. But really the importance of that is that it helps you, it helps even, it may not prevent the experience of these symptoms, but it hopefully will minimize them and give you a sense of empowerment. Like I knew 
this could happen and I know how to handle it or I know how to minimize the effects. Is that basically? Yeah. I mean, most of the time with any situ with any, um, problem, the first step is identifying the problem, knowing it, realizing it. Um, and then you can deal with it. So, yeah, you know, we talk about that unconscious incompetence and then you get conscious, um, incompetence. Um, you may not be competent psychiatrist or psychologist, but at least you knew about these things. Now, you know, now you can start getting the treatment or training or do whatever you need to, to, to try to address these things. So, uh, once again, we want you to be the person I knew this could happen and I know what to do. Yeah. Uh, there's, we've got an outline here in front of us. And, and one of the things on the outline is this EMDR. What does that mean? Well, it's a form. We and I've got the, the website. Folks can go to a website called emdr.org. And this treatment um, was, I believe, it was uh, identified and pioneered by a, a PhD. I don't remember his name. It's on that website there. We'll get make sure we give him credit. Dr. Shapiro. S H A P R O. Yeah, Francine uh, Shapiro. Yeah, so you can go to that website and learn about this, but it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And this is what what I think that there might be some. I hate to use the word controversy, but there might be some disagreement about how effective this can be. But it's a therapy out there that seems to me is pretty non intrusive, and it's used to treat post traumatic stress disorder. Now. Once again, I see a lot of medical records, and it seems like sometimes people think they have, or some doctor diagnoses somebody with PTSD because they had a hangnail. Um, so uh, I'm not sure what the definition of post traumatic stress syndrome is, but this has been used for PTSD. Um, and, and somehow, what it does, uh, it has to do with your eyes, obviously, but um, somehow this therapy uh, severs this bad memory um, um, from a triggering event and the symptoms, the negative symptoms from this, this bad event. Uh, I'm not sure how it works for sure, but it's my understanding that it can be effective. It isn't, and it is effective, at least in some instances where people have true uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. And, and I'll link, if you want to know more about this, I'll certainly link to the website emdr.org in the show notes. And then also the Cleveland clinic has a good webpage about this EMDR therapy as well. If, if it's something that you think might be beneficial to you or, or to someone, yeah. you know, and I don't know what else to say, except it disassociates the memory of the bad event from the painful symptoms of the event, the painful psychological symptoms. Not sure how it does it, but that's what it's supposed to do. Okay. So, just to sort of recap, we've talked about, you know, preparation, avoidance, de-escalation. Those, those are very important. But if you do have to use deadly force and self-defense, if you do have to go through that critical incident, not only is that preparation and training important to surviving that critical incident, but it's, support, it's important to uh, deal with the mental, emotional, psychological aftermath of the event. And so we've talked a lot, a, a lot about some of those symptoms that people may experience. And I, I think, you know, I'll link to, to some of uh, some other helpful resources in the show notes. But a lot of this, like we said at the beginning, comes from our training with with Masad Ayub uh, from MAG40, 
or mag 20 and we'll link to, to that to his website certainly if you're interested in taking that class um do you are there other resources that you'd like to point people to mike uh i know masada you've got a book uh that may talk about some of this a little bit uh maybe we can link to that uh or is that well i mentioned things? the emdr.org website um once again the acldn um if you're a member you can't get it unless you're a member uh, but their training videos are very good and it goes over this, these topics. Um, and I think that's, that's where I get most of it anyway. And obviously some of uh, Masada Yub's work, his writings, you can, you know, you can look up his books on Amazon and they'll go over a lot of these things as well. Um, beyond that, um, I would mention, so if people know what MAG40 is, MAG40 is essentially a 40 hour training course that Masada Yub puts on. And he travels around the country and does that. I don't know how many times a year, but Alex will have the link in there. Um, and it's a you know essentially a week long class, uh, at least four days. I think sometimes he does it in four days. I'm not sure. You'll have to go to his website. But yeah. that's where you're going to hear uh, about this a lot. Yeah. So I'll link to to all those resources in the show notes. At uh, next week, we're actually going to break from our series about the aftermath of self defense for a little bit. And we're going to talk about Mossad Ayub's Ten Commandments of Concealed Carry. So be sure to keep an eye out for that episode coming next week. Uh, and then we will come back to the aftermath at some point. And I'm actually going to create a playlist on YouTube to make the aftermath of self-defense videos and episodes easily accessible. So uh, keep an eye out for that as well. Uh, Mike, thanks again for joining the show. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, don't forget to like and subscribe to help us spread the message of freedom. Until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Forge of Freedom. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Alex, you can go to forgeoffreedom.com or follow him on Twitter at Forge of Freedom. Until next time, remember, you are the Forge of Freedom.